Sandos and the Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. SoCon Tournament Special. Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, we are so jacked up to talk ETSU men and women basketball, but more importantly, we love tournament season. There's nothing better, well, I would say, than sitting all day in the Civic Center and watching basketball can't nonstop, but I can't do that. So uh, I'll still be watching. I just can't sit exactly where I want to the entire time. So kind of take it serious, I'll tell you that. They are a bit hardcore. They did wilt on at least one thing for me, but they are not on a lot of other things. So it will, uh, we'll, we'll have coverage. We'll be in the building uh, doing the radio broadcast of our teams. Uh, we will be there for the sessions that we're allowed to be there, but uh, sitting there all day and watching things in which I do in general, I, I, I generally don't miss any or if I do, it's very little game action of any SOCON tournament game, men's, women's, anything. And so um, uh, very disappointed I'm not going to be able to do that uh, this year. But uh, I get to work studio for women's basketball on Thursday and Friday. And Sunday you'll figure it out on championship day. I guess it'll be down there, yeah. Uh, and then uh, plan on being there Saturday, Sunday, Monday, myself live. Let me ask you this before we get into yep. the breakdown. Breakdown. Because there's a lot to talk about on both the men's and women's side. It'll be men and women, and then we're going to fill out our brackets live on it. We have not discussed this. We have not gone back and forth. We have not filled them out in advance. We will fill them out We live. never Those agree on anything, so I feel very confident. We're so very we're going to talk you through where we got in terms of the thought process to the champion, each individual matchup, all that, in bold predictions. And we do have to have at least two upsets in each bracket, at least two upsets in each bracket in order to make sure – that we're not just doing the exact same thing, we're not taking the easy road, and so on and so forth. Before we talk about any of that, do you think the change for the SOCON earlier this week, late last week, whenever it was, of allowing 544 fans per game, per session, will make a difference for any teams? And if so, which teams? I do not, um, because I think the way they're doing it per session is each team gets 100 tickets. So, you know, for the... Sanford for for the first two games, Sanford ETSU Wofford UNCG, each on the women's side, each one of those teams gets a hundred tickets. Like I just don't. And even if you went on the men's side and you said the first day the Citadel Western Mercer Sanford was well, only a hundred tickets each. That's four hundred. Then they've got sponsors and things they're giving tickets to. That's going to give that. And fifty of the hundred tickets are going to be families, which rightfully so they should be. So. I, I just don't I don't think so. And you're not allowed, like in years past, ETSU fans would purchase tickets from other schools or other schools when a team would lose it by extra session tickets. And so fans would normally figure out, well, if we sit out there Saturday and a team got upset, then we'll find their fans and say, hey, you have your tickets and try to work out a deal on the cheap to pick up some tickets that were already paid for in sessions that fans may not want to stay and watch. I think it hurts teams that traditionally have good crowds. I think Mercer has done a great job of trying to get crowds. I think Furman and Wofford, the further they go in the tournament, the better crowds go. We obviously know ETSU's crowds are legit. I think Western probably takes a hit because that is the one time a year they get massive fans and support, and I think it shows. I think it favors teams that, you know, don't really have fans that travel to uh, Nashville. And so I, I don't think it'll have that much. And I think because everybody's played sort of kind of in this environment now, I think everybody's kind of used to it. I, I don't think this would be anything um, new. It would be great if, you know, the noise or something affected. I, I just don't think so. I, 
I think it's great some people will be allowed to get in there, but I, I just think it's going to be so sparse and you're not allowed to do sh- sell or share or allow more fans in that I don't think it's going to be that big a deal. So let's not, when we're talking about these games, give a winner or who we like more or anything like that. Okay. We'll do that in bold predictions. And let's start with the men's side. The play-in on Friday night, one of two, Sanford at Mercer. It is the 10 and the 7. Both of these went to overtime. These two matchups between the Bulldogs and the Bears when they played back-to-back on February 8th and 10th. Mercer wins by seven in both. Now, Sanford lost Myron Gordon after their first game against UNCG. Then Christian Guest, I don't know if you finally saw that on Twitter, but it is official. He is in the transfer portal. He uh, was gone after the January 20th uh, to February 3rd quarantine, and so now officially will not be back with Sanford. Now, I guess he could pull his name out of the portal like David Jean Baptiste did for Chattanooga, uh, but it appears he will not be back. So their top two scorers, those two combined for 31 points per game, are gone. Uh, with them, they scored less than 65 just twice, but they've done that three of the last four games without both of them. Before they had to quarantine, again, they lost at VMI and Furman by a combined 43. Any chance that Mercer lets this get this close again seems out the window to me, especially with the 15 days that they haven't played after another quarantine, that being Sanford. But there are surprises in March. We know that. Could they be well-rested, fresh? Could they be back in the gym working on some new things? Could the time off help them? Certainly a possibility. Uh, Mercer, I think, has been one of the more underperforming teams in the league to me all year. But, again, in March, talent can take over, and it certainly seems like this is a team that is as talented as many in the Southern Conference, Mercer and Sanford. What do you think? I think if I'm a Mercer Bear player that I probably hated my life for the last week or so, I can't imagine Greg Gary taking the 24-point loss at Western Carolina when they could have been a 16 not in the play-in game well. I don't think – I know Coach Gary very little just from the time I spent with him last year, and he was in our team hotel. And we got a chance to talk quite a bit there, but – it just does not strike me as a guy that went well. So I think uh, the fire will either be lit under Mercer or they would have quit, and then that would be an interesting match. If the fire is lit, I think, you know, the talent at Mercer, especially as you mentioned the two guys gone, it's guessing Gordon. That's huge, and it's shown already huge losses for Sanford. So I think uh, first few minutes I think you'll – see sort of which Mercer team is going to be. I think this game's more about Mercer than Sanford. Is Neftali Alvarez the most underrated player in the league in your mind? Or, considering the fact that you're a big Alex Hunter guy, another point guard, is Alex Hunter perhaps that instead of Neftali Alvarez? And Alvarez isn't even the most underrated at his position. Yeah, I, you know, that's, that's, a, that's actually a very good question because if you take Hunter off their team, I, I think what he does is way different than what Alvarez does. Um, I think Alvarez is a better defender. Um, I think Alvarez, clearly the better scorer. Does he run the offense enough? Does he equate to wins losses? And I, and earlier in the year, I would have said yes, Alvarez, probably more. But they've had some losses with him. The early losses without him, I, I, a hundred percent pinned on. Alvarez meant X number whatever to his team. And because the results have not been that with him there and they still seem to be as they are 500 or slightly under, then I just feel like, no, I'd still 
think Alex again to their team. But if you want me to pick a player to start a team with, it would be tough not to take Alvarez. But what Alex does to manage his team, I think, is underrated. But Alvarez is a talented guy. Like I voted Alvarez for all conference. I didn't Alex Hunter, and that is no disrespect to Hunter. I think I've told everyone that will listen to me my thoughts on Alex Hunter, and it's not that he's the greatest point guard in the Southern Conference. It's just he's a great fit for that team, for that system, and when he's gone, I don't see anybody taking the mantle from him. Does that answer that question for it you? It does. Okay. That is the 8 o'clock game. I just kind of labeled play-in number one because, to me, it's the easier of the play-ins. Uh, the other play-in kicks off the Southern Conference Men's Basketball Tournament Western and the Citadel. The Catamounts beat the Citadel for their first league win February 1st after losing their first seven league games. Mason Faulkner, the game winner with five seconds left. Hayden Brown misses just before the buzzer. Five days later, the Citadel wins by 11 in Charleston. Double-doubles for Tyler Moff and Hayden Brown. Western shoots 51% in game one, just 41% in game two. Western had scored 80 in regulation exactly zero times until the last two games, 81 against UNCG, and that's talking about league play, 85 against Mercer, five in double figures versus Mercer, Hightower, Halverson, Cork, Faulkner, Gibson, the usual suspects, or what we thought would be the usual suspects a lot of the year, all of them hitting their stride that day. Take out Hightower, and the other four went 22 of 30 from the floor, and again, they were red hot from deep. Western, 27 combined threes the last two games, shooting 50% or above in both games from deep. Against D1 opponents this year, they hadn't gotten to 50 and only really got close against UNC Wilmington in the season opener and North Carolina A&T. It's eerie to me for the Citadel. They're averaging exactly as many points as Mercer during league play, just under 75. Citadel, though, allowing eight more points per game. This is going to be a fun play and matchup because you've got a Western Carolina team playing their best. You've got a Citadel team that was a top two or three surprise in the league this year, I think, by all accounts. So unlike the play that we talked about just a few seconds ago, this one, for me, can go either way. There's a lot of reasons I can give you. I think Western, certainly they figured out in the last couple of games they got momentum. They certainly figured out how to score the basketball after going – three or four games not getting in the 60s. They've rattled off a couple games in the 80s. They've been shooting the ball from outside again. Uh, Did a lot of things well to pick up the win at UNCG. Certainly they throttled Mercer. Um, Citadel, they're just so tough because they don't do anything particularly well, but they're not awful in really any category if you just look individual categories and where they rank in certain areas. Yes, I guess scoring defense, you could do that. But other than that, I mean, when they shoot the ball, they're dangerous. If they get Hayden Brown going to the rim, they're dangerous. If they can get five, four or five threes from Rice, the, the record shows that they're dangerous. Um, Moff, is it, to me, this is a great first matchup. Is it Western gets things kind of righted a ship a little bit. They figured out maybe what they could be, and they keep that momentum going. Or can Citadel suffocate the Catamounts um, from around the arc and force them? I think they were 6 of 38 in the two games combined from three for Western. Mm. So can Western knock down threes? But been shooting hotter lately. You know, they're, uh, let's see, they're 27 of 52 lately. Yeah, pretty solid. So to me, I think it's going to come down to beyond the arc, even though – 
Um, at least for Citadel, they've tried to not be as much from beyond the arc. That being said, I still think they lead the nation in attempted threes and make, makes per game. So still in their repertoire, but it's not as much as it was. And so I think if Western continues the hot shooting, they get double-digit threes. I think it's going to be could be a long day for the Citadel, but something tells me the Citadel is going to be able to muck this thing up and it's going to come down to the wire. We'll talk more about exactly the outcome later, but it, this one feels uh, a bit strange to me because it seems like there's one team that you'd have winning just because they've been playing better lately. Obviously, you can tell I'm talking Western Carolina, which this unpredictable league would then tell you that, well, it's a weird year, so you're probably going to have Citadel win. Anyway. VMI at Furman on Saturday. This is a 6-3 matchup. The only time the two teams met, it was VMI beating Furman for the first time since the 2014-15 seasons. Ten straight for the Paladins. Trey Bonham hitting a free throw with three seconds left to win. Gurley, Hunter, Mounts, they combined eight for 35 in that game from the floor. They went 12 of 39 from three in that game. Both times they've taken at least that many threes this year. They have lost. Clay Mounts was one for 13 from the floor. We went over just how rare of a day that was for him on previous episodes. It's the strange kind of double-edged sword of it took one of the Paladins' main pieces to have essentially a career-worst day, but that can happen when you don't have a lot of depth to pick up the slack. Furman's top seven shooting nights from outside the arc, they've won. Shoot it at 50% or above, they're 14-0. and 0. That's 50% or above from the floor. 45% or below, they're 0-7. Now, since Miles Lewis came back for VMI after missing two weeks in January, VMI has won five of nine, and three of their four losses are by just one possession. This matchup presents a lot of interesting questions. Do you like it more for VMI because they're playing against another team that is largely predicated, or at least known for, because Furman does play some defense, but largely predicated on offense, or do you think that the chips could have fallen a better way for the Keenets? You know, they both play the same, not exact, but pretty close hybrid Princeton offense style. You know, a lot of back cuts, try to get layups, a lot of threes, not a lot of mid-range. I mean, similar styles in offenses, and I think that has led to similar games over years past. I think it will lead there. My question would be VMI off the layoff is really a bigger question for me than anything else because they would not have played since February 20th in which they lost a heartbreaker to the Citadel uh, 75-74. And we know their struggles on the road. And Asheville, I know, isn't a road game. It's a neutral game. But having the long layoff since February 20th, not being able to, to get going, I think it's a good matchup. And, again, I think all these things are about matchups. I think Western Citadel is a great matchup. Apparently, Previous matchups between Mercer and Sanford have been great matchups. They've gone, they played three overtimes in two regular season games, different rosters. So that's a different story, and they, we didn't see the second matchup. I think that's a little disappointing uh, that we didn't get Furman VMI. I think Furman at home probably wins that game, eight to twelve points, um, and I feel pretty confident in that. But this is Asheville. It's a different story. Can VMI get things going? Um, and that I think it's. It's a little tough for me to see how that's going to go. For Furman, I think the big thing for them is can they get two of their big three going and not – or honestly, they have a big five. And I know they've started Garrett Heaney and some other things and Pew's getting more time and all that. But – Certainly a big four. Big four for sure. I mean, can they get – though? I mean, can they get – I mean, Alex Hunter's going to distribute, not turn the ball over, pretty much know that. Can they get 
you know, Slauson scoring off the bench? You know, can they get mounts? Can they get can they not have one of those guys drop a goose egg and not get going? And then rebounding, I think, is is something under the radar um, that is going to be an undertone in this game because I think Jake Stevens and some of those guys at times are great on the glass and at times they give up offensive rebound second-chance points, and Furman is really good at that. I mean, Clay Mounts is one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. I think Noah Gurley's a guy that can go and, and get it as well. Slauson gets some offensive boards. I think VMI – so if you haven't played a lot, and I know they play similar systems, so there's a little bit of advantage VMI. They kind of know the system and the idea and the theories and what's – there's going to be new wrinkles. Conference tournament is always new wrinkles. But, you know, are they going to be able to handle the wrinkles, handle game speed, and be able to get on the glass? Those are sort of the things for me. You talked a little bit about the road struggles with Dan Earl. They've won just ten road games in six seasons, and I kind of expanded on that a little bit, and you wonder if this can be the X factor since Dan Earl's been in charge, the team hasn't won a non-play-in game in the SoCon tournament, though they have won two games in the league postseason. The play-in two seasons ago against Western Carolina by 13, and then Sanford by 18 last year, beaten, though, by a combined 40 the next round of those two years, including ETSU last season. Does their lack of high-level SoCon tournament experience matter, or for that matter, their, those Ted Road wins in the six combined seasons? Both. Uh, and, and it is curious, can, can, can you spin it and say, well, it's just the first game playing, they'll be fine. And then they can't figure out round two. And then, you know, I could I could go with that theory as well. But I think both. I think everything is, is tightened in. I think, you know, you have to learn how to win in those situations, how to be able to accept those situations. I think also there's a little bit of an advantage, too, for VMI because in years past they've been around that 8-9 game. And the problem with that game is, is you play at 5.30 one night and turn around at noon the next day. And you're playing the number one team. And let's be honest, the last several years, you know, the number one teams have been ridiculous as far as regular season records. And so this year would be the one year VMI's like, man, if we're going to be eight in that game, this, this would be great. And I'm not knocking UNCG, but I think we all agree that this wasn't quite the runaway that we've seen in years past for some not other teams. two years ago, not ETSU last year. No, and, and even Greensboro a few years before that. I mean, so, and, and even going back to, you know, was that 14-15, the Chattanooga team that only lost a couple. So, I, I mean, I think I think there, there, there are some tough draws there um, that VMI's had in the second round, and they weren't very good, but they were good enough to win that eight, the play-in game. Now... You know, they're middle of the road, and the top of the league just isn't what it was. And I don't care if Emile was playing ETSU, Chat, Furman, Wofford. I, I would think that the same thing here. They've got a, a better shot in this contest. Experience, I think, is a, is a big thing in those situations. I think the Furman players clearly are used to playing in the upper uh, levels of the league and competing for championships and used to kind of maybe. But they've had some first-round bounce-outs, too. So it's going to be – man, I don't know that there's a game other than the, <clears throat> the the Mercer game where one thing is stacked against one team significantly. And the thing – there's an underlying tone in all of them, and we'll, we'll get into that more when we take our predictions. And I think the underlying for me is still, yes, VMI's won on the road. They haven't won a quarterfinal game in quite some time. They certainly – I haven't played since February 20th. There's a lot of things going there. So that's the 8 o'clock in the nightcap on Saturday. Just before that, 
or I should say earlier in the day. Uh, actually, it's the 4-5, the 2-30 game. Here in the Buccaneer Sports Network, it is a 2 o'clock pregame ETSU and Chattanooga. And I struggled and racked my brain to think of two more unconscionable losses against the same team in the same season. I, I can think of games where in a season a team has played another and lost in a really bad way, just you can't fathom it, and then they play a different team, and that happens again. But to have two against Chattanooga the way they did, of course, A.J. Caldwell, the unlikely game winner for Chattanooga at Freedom Hall from way outside, then, of course, the timeout from the Bucks bench that wiped away a Damari Monsanto would-be game winner after the timeout, a miss for Monsanto, and that ends up being a two-point loss, much like the one at Freedom Hall. You may be able to write off the finish to those games if you're looking through Buccaneer sunglasses. But harder to look past the fact that two of the Bucks' five games in league play, they've scored 65 or less. I should say they've scored 65 or less in five of them. Two of them have come against Chattanooga. Jason Shea's squad one and four in those games. And perhaps another trend, ETSU now one and six in games separated by five or less. Four games that went to overtime, including that game against UNCG on Saturday. In games separated by seven or less for Chattanooga, 11 and five. So in close games, when it comes right down to it, and this is what these games came down to, obviously the first two times, one team has gotten it done, one team has not. The Bucks have also lost six of their last eight. Chattanooga has won six of their last eight. It appears these teams are headed in opposite directions. The numbers say Chattanooga has the edge. Of course, one thing we know about the Southern Conference in the 2021 season is that when something appears to be one way, it can be the exact opposite. Look a little closer at that Chattanooga schedule. They had won six in a row lost their last two. I think this is a Chattanooga team that still, to me, is much improved, but are they also maybe trending a bit downward coming into the postseason considering they lost those final two games? Yeah, uh, you know, there's there's a lot to unpack and all that stuff you just rolled there. The difference in the last eight games is certainly noticeable, but Chat has lost their last two. I mean, ETSU has lost with their last three. Was it four? Was it three? So, <clears throat> both teams really not going into the tournament the way they want to. The question is: Is Chattanooga going to ride the momentum of the two heartbreaking defeats and just try to impose their will early to get doubt on ETSU, or will ETSU be able to use two of the worst losses they've had all season, and not worst loss by the caliber team they lost to, but just how you lose? on taking a lead, them giving up a game winner, then thinking you had a potential game winner, and then it's taken away. So, And just the way the games have played out. I mean, they just neither team has really done a whole lot. I mean, ETSU's done some great things defensively, but in the same token, they really haven't done anything offensively. In the first half, they've been abysmal, and they've had decent second halves. I mean, in the first half, they went in the locker room in the first game in Johnson City, and really just a head-scratcher because they're coming off a big win, and you're thinking, okay, ready to go. And then all of a sudden, you're like, oof, you know, down by six, which was almost a miracle because ETSU went on a run to get it to six. And then you look at the second contest, and it was just uh, a little bit of a, a rock fight where Chattanooga held like four- to six-point lead for like all the game. Like, ETSU, you know, really didn't fall down. Or if they fell down by nine, it was a race quickly. But at the same token, it just felt like you couldn't get, you know, couldn't get it to one bucket and keep it there until late in the game. And, of course, the second game, out, you know, just one player in double figures for ETSU and Ladarius Brewer. But ETSU, you know, holds guys like Malachi Smith to ten. 
They hold David Jean Baptiste to six. Banks doesn't even have a field goal. He has six. I mean, you look at some. So th- this has been an awkwardly defensive game that I will be curious to see if somehow both offenses open up and this game gets in the 70s or mid-70s or somewhere around that range. Do you think, looking back at those games, and you tend to watch all of them back at one point or another leading up to, especially if you're going to have a game where the rematching for a third time in the postseason would be the special exception, uh, but generally you watch all the games before you have a rematch of a team at any point in the season. Was what Chattanooga did on defense the game changer in those, or did ETSU just not make shots? You know, it's very interesting. They, they just – Chattanooga isn't great defensively, but they are very physical. And they're not very big, but they somehow play bigger than what their you know size says they are. And for whatever reason, that is a difficult matchup. I thought maybe going in the second game, ETSU would be able to use their size and length a little more. And they weren't able to do that. And the Bucks were able to force more turnovers in the second game the first game. The first game, I think it was only like five turnovers Chattanooga had in the first game and then had like 11 or 12 in the second. But I think ETSU's got to do a better job because they're just like a lot of teams. They're better in open floor. Force turnovers go. They've got to do a better job of forcing turnovers. They also at times have let guys get a little bit streaky on them, whether that's Casey Hankton or Baptiste in the first game. And, of course, you know both those – or at least for Baptiste, you know he can score in bunches. You know Malachi Smith can score in bunches. Banks is a guy can score. But if Hankton and, and Kinnich, if they start hitting three or four threes, I think ETSU is going to be a little bit of trouble. But they got to figure out something offensively because Lamont Paris has been able to shut down the ETSU offense with sort of his more physical play than ETSU. And that – does that shock you? A guy that comes from Wisconsin, used to physical play, Big Ten. And wanna, I mean, we, we both are probably the only people on the, you know, even the fans that listen to our podcast don't care about Big Ten. We're probably the only two that do. And it's just, uh, you know, it's more of a bloodbath, you know, like a ground game football type game in the Big Ten. And I feel like that's Chattanooga style. They just don't have the the tall bodies. It's not that their guys aren't big as far as weight and muscular and all that. They just don't have height and length. But they've been able to really do that to a lot of teams. So I think VTSU can take advantage of their height and length for once. I think if they can trot, because Chattanooga's not deep, if they can get, you know, a Deke and Bonnie Patterson, Ty Brewer, and some of those guys going to the rim, Ladarius, Brewer, you know, I think they got uh, Baptiste to foul out in the first game. So if they can go to the rim, get some things happen, get some foul trouble, get to the line, um, try to be more physical than they are. I think that's going to be the difference in ETSU's offense. X factors for me. Demari Monsanto, of course, for ETSU, has been double digits since that five-game streak where he had 20 or more. He started the season with five bad games offensively. Now he's closed the regular season with five bad games offensively. In between, he, he was pretty lights out. You know, what Demari Monsanto is going to show up in the postseason for ETSU for – Chattanooga, speaking of going to the line, to me it's Stefan Kenich, and uh, the reason I say going to the line is ETSU allowed Kenich, who is the best free throw shooter in the Southern Conference if you match up volume to percentage, uh, 78 of 88 this year, 89%. ETSU sent him there only three times in those two games, and he's averaging, what, nearly four attempts per game. So that's five attempts if you combine the two games under what he would average. 
Um, since that 29-point game, remember that against Western Carolina, the come-from-behind win, it seemed like Chattanooga was dead to rights, and then Kenich just goes off, had an unbelievable game, 8 of 10 from the floor, 7 of 7 from outside, 6 of 6 from the line, 29 points. Since then, he's just 2 of 9 from the floor for 9 points. I think if he shows up on a game-by-game basis in the tournament, Chattanooga is going to be really tough. That being said, he's got, let's see, just doing some quick math, two double-figure games in the last 11. They're 10-2 and two when he gets to double figures. So, Gene Baptiste, we looked at it yesterday, Gene Baptiste, Malachi Smith, Darius Banks, they've all been pretty much what they've been the entire year against DTSU. Now, Kenich has two to an extent because he's averaging, what, seven, eight points a game? And he averaged like six and a half or seven against DTSU. But he has those breakout big nights. Here and there, it's been less lately as opposed to the beginning of the year. Uh, he scored in double figures in eight of the first 11. Hasn't been as frequent during conference play, but when he does what he is capable of doing, Chattanooga is really difficult to defeat. Those are my two X factors on either side because Kenich can blow up, so can Damari, we know that. Um, neither have done it a lot, uh, at least in the last four or five games. So, and I don't guard each other, but whoever scores the most in that game you think has the distinct advantage. Uh, in that quote-unquote matchup, because it won't probably be a direct matchup. True, they won't guard each other, but in but in reality, I, I mean, I, yeah, I think so. As you say that, it makes a lot of sense. You know, let's say one guy goes for 15, one guy goes for six. I would automatically say that the whoever had 15 wins again. Especially considering you've got Ladarius Brewer and David Sloan consistent on ETSU side. You've got Malachi Smith and David Jean Baptiste consistent on Chattanooga side. And then it comes down to if you think those two will cancel each other out, which I tend to think that they will because Sloan has been extremely consistent in conference play. Ladarius, you know what you're getting from him on the floor. And Gene Baptiste and Malachi, again, you and me have talked about Malachi an unbelievable amount over the last week. And then Gene Baptiste, you know, we may not like how he's handled the season, but he has been relatively consistent for Chattanooga. So, yeah, then it comes down to everybody else, especially in games that are separated by one possession, as these two have been the first two times they've met. Okay. Uh, if I say any more on this, I'll give away my prediction, which you don't want. Uh Outlook for UNCG and Wofford, because we're not going to break down those games, but uh, because we don't know who they're going to play, obviously. UNCG, obviously, the number one seed. Isaiah Miller is what he is. Sealed up Southern Conference Player of the Year against ETSU at 32-7-7-4. Storm Murphy, I know, was second or third on a lot of people's ballots for Player of the Year as Wofford, I would say, overperformed um, this season and had, uh, you know, a young team, a team that I wasn't sure what they would be able to get out of. Uh, but they finished second. Um, those two at the top of the league, yes, maybe not as strong as in previous years, but they have earned those top two spots. Do you believe that they are locks to, let's say, get to a final? And, again, don't give away too much. I'm asking a question for you that we have to answer later. But do you believe that they are the runaway two strongest teams in the league? No. No, I, I don't. And, you know, again, I think – UNCG played their whole schedule. They were at 13-5. and five. They still had the inside track because if people had to play more games, there's still more shot that they lose than people, at least looking at the league results this season, would run away and win. I think Furman would have had to try to win three more. I think Wofford you know, could have won a couple more, but they would have lost the tiebreak anyways. ETSU had a few more, but it was already behind a loss column, so it was Chattanooga. So I don't think they're the – Runaway, I think they've certainly uh, survived and proved again that they're very well coached. They're going to be tough to beat. They do all the things. I'm curious next year for the league 
because there's some big hitters coming off some rosters at the top of the the league. I mean, obviously, we've talked about it, but player of the year, Isaiah Miller, is going to be gone. And would, likely, and, well, that's true. You never know. I mean, he could come back. Storm Murphy could come back. You know, there is options for these guys to come back. There's also options for these guys to leave and go to another school. True. Which I'm kind of curious to see what happens there. You know, would a uh, and, and further down the road, would a talent like Mason Faulkner try to figure out, you know, do I want to go play pro ball or do I want to go try to play somewhere else for a year or do I want to come back to Western? Does Isaiah Miller, um, you know, if he does, he's already won a championship. That's the only thing with Miller. If he wouldn't have won any, ter- not been to an NCAA tournament, I could see him not coming back. Miller has, Murphy's got a good shot too. They've got a shot to make some money. And I think next year their the overseas money wasn't quite what it was in years past. This year, I think it's gonna be there next year. Plus, I think G League. I think there's some there's some options for Isaiah Miller and I think Storm Murphy to go do some things. I think Clay Mounts at six eight six nine can go do some things overseas as well. So I think there's um, there's some shots of those guys. But I think I don't I don't think UNCG or Wofford. Can I see them winning the tournament? Yes. Can I see those two tooth and nail battle it out and get to title games versus one another? Yes. Can I also see both of them not surviving um, either the quarters or the semis and not making a championship game? Yes, I do. For UNCG, if Isaiah Miller isn't going to score 32, they need a lot from their other guys. I think that that's the obvious key for them. Um, and, of course, for some turnovers, turning that into offense because they're not a great shooting club. For Wofford, where do you think that key falls? You know, I it, Murphy's had some games where he's laid some eggs, and or at least been taken out of the games. Maybe he's not laid an egg, but he's been taken out of it. But I think Wofford gets in a little bit of trouble when they can't rebound and when they can't score around the basket because they're not getting as much post play as they did last year, and they're not getting clearly as much as when Cam Jackson was there, and he was. I don't know that we've had a super talented true center in our league since him. So, um, uh, and that's so, you know, maybe Luke, I don't want to disrespect Luke Scasson or something like that, but I still think, like, you know, Cam Jackson was tough to handle his size in the Southern Conference. But I think the post play is the biggest difference for them. I know, you know, you can add Sam Godwin in there, you can put Messiah Jones down there, but I just don't think they're getting quite the interior play on some of the games that they're losing as they have in years past. So, to me, that's the biggest difference is they're not quite fully waffering unless they can get an extra score inside. And not just that, but to fend the post and also kind of clean up the glass. All right. There's our look Segment at it. one. There's our look at it. All right. We'll talk uh, women's SoCon tournament after this timeout. San Jose Sidekick, Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Brightridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Brightridge, new name, renewed promise. Learn more at brightridge.com. Sidekick. We have a mission. Strap it on. Here we go. 
we breaking down? I'm just kidding. Wow. No, I'm just kidding, buddy. All right, let's talk. We talked men. It is wide open. We'll give you our predictions. That's how wide open it is. Women's side, i got to be honest, I think is just as well. I think there is a slight favorite, and then other than that, it is wide open. I'm not convinced that there's going to be a runaway. Again, like the men, sure, the one and two seeds could meet, could play for the title, yada, yada. I'm not convinced that it's that open and shut this year because – I just don't think somebody's been. Th- I know. I know. Sanford was the outright champion. I know Mercer solid two, but in the same token, and I'm not going to steal because I'm going to let you do your thing. But I just don't feel like. I think it's going to be as wide open as anything. Let's say if ETSU Sanford, which would be the first game of the entire men's or women's tournament of the Southern Conference time in Asheville, that will be at noon tomorrow. Buccaneer Sports Network, 11:30 pregame. Jay Sanders will be in the studio. I'll be on site. Uh, had to talk to head coach Brittany Azell ahead of time because the Southern Conference is not allowing interviews uh, one-on-one, either pregame or postgame with coaches. So uh, that'll play around 11.45. Let's go with Western Carolina and Mercer. This is the 2-7, a tale of two games certainly between the two. The first time the two sides got together, Mercer trailed by double digits in the fourth quarter before outscoring the Catamounts 24-12 in that final frame, forced overtime, scored 10 of the 13 in the extra session to win 69-62. Western just 15 points in the final 15 minutes. Mercer's momentum carries over to day two. They trounce Western 71 to 47. That started a streak of games in which Western scored less than 55 of the final seven in the regular season. Mercer has struggled in first games against the bottom half of the league, and I'll be interested to see what you make of this, considering there's no second game in the Southern Conference postseason, but they were up by just one against UNCG in the fourth quarter before padding that win with some late points. Needed overtime against both Furman and Western, and then, of course, against DTSU in the final game of the regular season. Obviously needed a pair of late stops to hold off the Bucks, who scored 73, 15 more than any other regulation game this season in conference play. They outscored those opponents in game twos, by 53, nearly 18 per game. Of course, the Blue and Gold didn't have that second game against the Bears, but with no second game in the postseason either, as we mentioned, bring your best on day one or risk going home. Uh, Does Mercer, especially considering the fact that those results I talked about were against the bottom four in the league, does Mercer worry about something like that going into this contest? I'm not saying they sleepwalked through those games, but they definitely weren't at their best against those uh, against those teams. Now, Western finished second to bottom in the league, obviously. Mercer, a team that did win five of their last six, the only loss coming against Sanford, which ended up costing the Bears the league title. Um, this matchup, I think, looks like it is more talent on one side, that there is just an unstoppable force versus a Western Carolina team that maybe isn't quite ready yet. That being said, um, Western has been a lot peskier than in recent years. And may it be a tough out of the Southern Conference tournament? I think Kyle Hill's done a great job. I think he's slowly <clears throat> creating and getting things that he wants. I think you're starting to see semblance of an offense and a philosophy starting to take shape as the season's gone along. I think, again, if he gets – and I don't think he loses a lot, but if he gets a lot back, he can do some things. I think they will be pesky. I can't figure out Mercer because – I watched a couple of games before the ETSU, and I picked a couple wins and a couple losses to try try to prepare to see what the difference is. And it's hard to put my finger on what exactly is the issue. 
because roster for roster, especially let's just say starter for starter, maybe the, the bench isn't quite as deep, but let's just go, you know, per position, it's tough to to take a lot of people over Mercer's individual players. They're kind of Furman of the women's side. Uh, yeah, the true. Very, very good. And, and they've got the most dynamic defensive player who can score and and Shannon Titus and I mean uh, she guards all five positions she is the most athletic I think in the league she certainly can block shots she can get steals she can go to the rim she can score she can distribute you know jump shot comes and goes at times but unbelievable I, you know Neil Tyser's not afraid of any shot I mean I mean goodness gracious she's just shooting at will no matter I mean unconscionable shots. I think Doherty's good. I mean, Doherty's the one that can dominate the paint, and then Lewis is your traditional point guard. And, and, got and, and what anywhere. a great addition she was, too, right? That was the girl from uh, Georgia State. Yeah. So, you look at the five, and and it's tough. And I didn't, you know, and I thought, may, I, and maybe because the bias from last year, and this happens, right? A team who was really, really good, fell on hard times, well, that's really what they are. Well, and then they quickly bounce back, right? So, okay, so the outlier was really the one year more than anything else. But in their losses, it's very head-scratching because I can't quite figure out how they look really good in a couple of games and they turn right around and look awful. I mean, look almost disorganized. And even in some of their wins. Because they've only lost three times. But to me, what's more concerning is the wins that have come down to the wire against those bottom teams. And I will say, considering they didn't win a lot of games last year, and they do have a couple of ladies that were on the you know a championship team two years ago, they have been able to gut out those wins. And I think that gives them an advantage and probably having a few of those still on the roster from two years ago from a championship-winning team. And even though some may not have played significant minutes, they were there, they experienced it, I think that is a huge advantage for Mercer. This new territory for Western, I think that that's sort of the scary part for Western. I like the way their trajectory is going. I think they've got two talented three I will you got at least three talented ladies um, you know depending on how things progress moving forward would be able to to do some things for the catamounts but I think it's going to be more about which Mercer team shows up and if Western the problem for Western is they can't score so if Western can if they can't get to 50 which they have in a lot of games this year then Mercer's going to get to 60 yes. without trying. Well, and even if they get to 50 like they did against, I believe it was UNCG that first game, I think it was 53 to 43. Um, that's the one where they pulled away late a little bit. Even getting to 50, considering the fact that Western hasn't gotten their five in the last seven games. I, I mean, if if Western if Western gets to 50, maybe they got a shot um, just because they're holding teams to about 62, so maybe they get them, you know, holding some. But if they can't get to – 50. They certainly got no shot. I, I feel like Mercer's going to. Mercer's got 60 in the bag every game before they walk out on the floor. I, and I know there are a couple games that they, they've been just under that. But I mean, they're going to get to 60. That's the one thing I do know about Mercer. They will get to 60. They've got enough scores. They can get to 60. Can Western Carolina score enough to get there to make it interesting? And I think in years past, you would say they don't have the skill to. This year, I, I'm not sure you they, can say that. They have. They would, Years past, you would say, I have no shot. But Kyla Allison's Noria Cruz, now they've had Timber Motes for a couple of years. Motes is the one that, again, when you can maximize 
your possessions and touches. You know, Moats can go a six for eight from the floor, seven and nine from the floor. And then you can make a couple of more mistakes and it's not the end of the world. Where if you have Moats go, you know, one for seven, one for eight, then there's your efficiency, probably your only, if you look at the stats at least, you know, someone that you can count on in terms of efficiency on a game-by-game basis. If she doesn't have a good game, that's going to make it really, really difficult for Western because essentially in a matchup like this against a team that is still, I think this is a much more complete team Western this year. It's not just Jewel Smalls and everybody else. There are multiple options. But Mercer is still by far the more talented team. You have to play almost perfect. And so I think that the key is going to be Moats. Western Carolina, can she get up those six to eight shots? Can she make four, five, six of them and make it easier for Allison, Cruz, Nadia Marshall, uh, Lauren LaPlante, who's had a down year. She was preseason all-league and certainly has not lived up to what she was she last year. She can get year. hot, though. Absolutely. Then you can have her take a couple more threes. You know, if you make one, hey, go ahead. You know, shoot, shoot a heat check, right? You know, go down the floor and take one from 25. If it goes in, it the reward is huge for us. Now, it, it doesn't hurt as bad because Moats is doing well in the paint, and so one missed shot isn't, you know, the end of the world. Um, and Allison and Cruz, when I saw them, I, I really liked their game. You know, the MTSU transfer, Allison, and then the freshman Cruz, uh, Kylie Hills found a uh, really dynamic duo there, uh, but certainly Cruz is going to be um, there if she sticks around for the long haul as a piece to build around. So, uh, interesting game. Not as easy for Mercer as maybe it would have been in UNCG and Chattanooga, this is the 3-6 uh, matchup, I believe. The 3-6 matchup. Am I looking at this right? or did I, UNCG uh, and Chattanooga? Is that right? No. That's not even right. Furman. Okay. Well, okay. I, I, clearly I'm way off. Uh, Chad is the three seed if you're going to start with Chad. Well, okay. I, I, had the, uh, I, had the, I had the six uh, and eight teams, the, uh, the six and eight record for each team, and I obviously uh, had those confused. Very good, Mike Gallagher. Very good. You had one, Chad. Uh, Chattanooga, to me, is a team that, once again, um, you talk about together teams, and this is uh, looking at how things have been for Mercer, right? Maybe a a little bit more individual, uh, but you see Sanford, who we'll talk about in a bit. You see Chattanooga and just doing an excellent job, Carly Coons and Katie Burroughs. They've lost a little bit last year, uh, Chattanooga, with Nadia Burks and um, Lakeland Bolden, who, of course, was the heart and soul of that team. Absolutely excellent. Furman was someone that I think a lot of people counted out. Uh, They were a bit down and out at the beginning of the season. And they've gone and made a run, as have uh, UNCG, who we'll talk about in just a bit. But both those teams have won four of their last five after I certainly wrote them off as just having bad years. A lot of guard injuries for Furman um, over the course of the season. They lost Drea Outen. Um, They've had others in and out of the lineup as well. They lost a ton from last year's team. But Jackie Carmen just has a way of finding herself in the middle of the standing. She is someone that is Furman women's basketball through and through. Their best years were when she was playing there. She comes back, and most of their best years since she played there have come when she's been coaching there. And it seems like regardless of what she has at her disposal, she finds a way to get the job done. And even when it looked like they were going to be a bottom two or three team in the league, Yes, they ended up sixth, I get that, but they end up really in a tie for fifth and right around 500. She's done it again. This is going to be a fun matchup because you've got one hot team in Furman versus a Chattanooga team that just seems so steady and composed. And, again, it's one of those I just can't figure out why Chat struggles. They've got pieces to score, and they just seem to take games off or just have bad games or they can't figure out at the same time. And – 
for Furman. <coughs> Bless you. Oh, God. I'm allergic to talking about Furman, apparently. But uh, for Furman, I think, you know, and, and no knock on Jackie. You know, I love Jackie because I, I've known her since she was a player um, because she was um, Roman the paint about the time I was in school. And they just seem to do this. They go on streaks where you're like, man, they're really bad. And then you go on streaks, you're going, okay, I, I can see I can see something going on. And they're not doing it a lot with offense because they're still averaging under 60 points per contest. That's, that's overall for the season. In league play, they're even worse at 58 points per contest. They are doing it with defense. And they do have, I think, some key pieces that make it difficult for people to score. And me and you both have been, I think, a – a Taborn fan, right? Celine Taborn for a long but time. She's on, man. Yeah, she's good. But she certainly, it's hard to score around Taborn. No doubt. And so I think they have some things where they're just trying to push everything to the middle, push to Taborn. Hodges is a rebounding machine. Uh, Sydney James has been nice to see how she's been able to pick up her game. And this seems to set up perfect almost for Furman. They, they, peaked a little bit at the right time. And, yes, they beat Western the seven seed twice. They beat Wofford, who's our rival. You certainly could see how they get geeked up for that contest to, to get the three-game win streak. But they split with Chattanooga. You know, and, they, and normally we've seen teams, road teams, win the second game because you got a little more. It was the opposite. They actually won the first game in, in that meeting. And they kept chat, which is weird. They kept chat. Um, 56 in the first one and 52 in the second one. But they can only score 48 points. So, you know, again, I think they're doing some things defensively that's going to be challenging. And where I think Chad has struggled some is they they can't seem to get the continuity scoring on their end as well. So this one, I think, is going to come down to the wire. And literally, I think if a team gets to 60, it's over. If the first team gets to 60, I think the game is over. You should just stop playing and go home because nobody's going to catch up. Well, here's some of the wins for Furman in the league. 52-46, that was over Chad. 55-46 against ETSU. 54-45 against Western. 56-44 against Western. 58-52. I don't know if you're sensing a trend here, but when it is a race to 53, 54, 55 right in there, it benefits Furman. That's the type of game that they win. But against Chattanooga in that first game, as you mentioned, 68 to 56. If Chattanooga is able to get to 60, and that is something that they have certainly the talent to do, but have not necessarily done it you know, every single game. They have had their issues offensively this year, have had outages, and it's seemed kind of random, but they've lost a lot of those games where they put up a 42, a 46, a 48, a 50. You know, they do have those random games that they throw in, and one of them was against Furman in that 52-46 to 46 loss where things just do not drop. And they don't have that player like a Lakeland Bolden from last year that they can turn to as someone to calm and bring some ease to the offense. They've got a lot of talent on the offense. They've got Bria Dial, but she can be streaky. They've got Ebony Williams. She has matured over and over and over again and gotten to be a really solid player in the league, but she will throw in a clunker here and there. So this is not going to be a coast-to-the-finish type game against Chattanooga. I expect this one to be very tight one way or another. 
Um, and if Chattanooga can avoid having that really bad day on the worst possible day, I think it's a victory for them. But that being said, Furman certainly has a chance in this one. My only counterpoint to that would be, and we talk about home and away records, and this is neutral, I understand, but Chattanooga is essentially your best team in the Southern Conference away from home, save a Mercer who is 8-2 away from home this year. Chattanooga was 7-4, Furman the worst. They were 1-12, lost 12 of their 13 games outside of Greenville, and that's going to be an uphill battle for a lot of these bottom four teams because you look at the top four, Everybody has at least four away wins. Nobody has more than three in the bottom. And you look at the combined record, I'm just going to add this up quick, seven and 38 for the bottom four teams outside of their own buildings this year. Chattanooga, just to, just to and I did do a little bit of research going into this, uh, in this particular game with the particular number 60. Chattanooga, their only loss when they scored 60 or more, they scored exactly 60, and they lost to Sanford, 71-60. Every other game, they scored 60 or more. They won. Their five losses, they scored 46, 60 as I mentioned, 42, 44, 50. So I, if chat gets to 60, I feel pretty good in that particular matchup. They are going to win the game. The question is, is Furman was able to hold them down to 56 and to uh, 50 uh, – Held them down to 56 and 46, or 68 and 46. Sorry, 68 and 46. So is it going to be the matchup where they score 46, or the matchup where they score 68? So to me, this is about Furman holding Chat down. If Chat shoots the basketball well, gets kind of going, gets dialed, hitting a couple long bombs, they get AC inside doing her thing. Ebony Williams, who's been struggling as of late, turns it around. Uh, one of my, you know, one of the best names in basketball. Olaf Stoddard's distributing and making plays, and they got the best six. Six player in the country, right? Uh, six woman is that what we're calling? Six six uh, woman in the I'll let you try and six man, yeah, whatever. Yeah. But uh, and uh, Dean and uh, yeah, Gerald's. Gerald's, thank you. And so Gerald's is unbelievable score. So there's options that they can get, and that's why I think when they have a few clicking at the same time, they are hard to beat. Five six times this year, they've not been clicking, and so that's enough to give you doubt, and enough I think to give Furman hope. Because they've shut them down before, can they shut them down again? Funny, you look at the 4-5 matchup on the men's side, ETSU and Chattanooga, it appears that there are two teams trending in different directions, and it's the 4-seed taking off and the 5-seed sinking a bit. And on the women's side in the 4-5 matchup with Wofford and UNCG, it once again appears that the, uh, well, in this case, the lower seed is the one that's ascending, and the higher seed is the one that's coming back down to earth. But very similar in the fact that you've got those trends. It just happens to be flipped for which team is on the rise and which has fallen off. For Wofford, you know, I was certainly surprised when they were 7-3. and three. Uh, It didn't make a lot of sense to me considering that they didn't have Chloe Wani, right? They had lost a couple of other major pieces from last season. And, I mean, Deja Green, I think, at Virginia Tech now, I mean, absolutely exceptional player. Um, and just being out there more than Chloe Wanick perhaps made a more um, a bigger imprint on that program, despite the fact that Wanick, yes, does have a lot of the records, and people will maybe remember her more for just how smooth she was on the court when she was on the court. The problem was those injuries. Green was out there a lot more often, and she was dynamic. So you don't have those two coming into the year. I just kind of wrote off Wofford. I said I think it's going to be a five or six seed for the Terriers 
this year, and you look up and they're seven and three, and all of a sudden you start to question yourself, right? You go into the last five games and you're like, okay, well they've got Sanford and Mercer and Furman. They're going to lose those five. They win the first one against Sanford, and that smacked me right in the face and shut my mouth because that's a huge victory. It wasn't home still to put up 70 against Sanford, which ended up being one of what just their two losses on the entire season in the Southern Conference. Um, opened some eyes and shut some mouths, mine included. But then they do have that regression, and they start to struggle some offensively. They gave up 80 to Sanford the next day, lost in a low-scoring tight game against Mercer in game one, and then gave up 83 to Mercer, uh, losing by nine, and then lost on the road at Furman in that final game of the season. Uh, This is a Wofford team that has something to prove. In terms of UNCG, and it's a similar thing to Furman, like we talked about, one four of five, and it's two just great coaching jobs, to not let their teams give up, not let them wallow, keep pushing them, being positive, and trying to lift them up instead of tearing them down. Trina Patterson and Jackie Carson clearly did that because UNCG has won four of their last five. They swept Furman. They lose to Chattanooga on the road, but then came back and beat them 58-50. to and then Western Carolina, a 54-42 win. I saw UNCG, you and I both did, when they were here against ETSU, and it seemed like for them to win a game, some really outlandish things needed to happen. Um, Some unbelievable shots went in. They had the benefit, I think, of a couple breaks on that first night, and then ETSU beats them in night two for their only conference win of the year. This is a matchup that I can't say, okay, well, Wofford, you know, they were up there. They were contending for the league title, and surely they're going to get back to that. When you've got a team like UNCG that plays lockdown defense the way that they do, there are no sure things, and the players that have given you a ton on the other side, talking in this case about Wofford, they're going to face a force that, yes, they are familiar with, obviously, the two teams um, in the uh, the regular season, or, uh, you know, you look at them, and it's a split, right, 55-51, uh, UNCG is able to win game one, and then Wofford wins by four. They score the exact same amount of points in that series. Uh, to me, this is uncomfortable for both sides because Wofford is reeling a bit, while UNCG, uh, yes, you won four of five, but you also know that on any given day your offense can sputter and sputter consistently. I, I think, it, you know, it's incredible, at least Wofford <coughs> in conference games only, you know, they, they spread sort of the – the basketball round. They got four ladies that have taken 120 shots or 105 to 150. UNCG, I mean, let's be honest, she's taking the shots, right? It, it's crude it. CC. She's taking 196. Nobody else has taken more than 80 in league action. I mean, so we're going a little bit, of, you know, uh, She's almost doubling here. up everybody else as well in overall. 312 to uh, 159 for Tori. But, I mean, so to, to me, that's what makes it, which is also – Impressive that her teammates are. She got a couple teammates that are near her scoring average in league play, because they're definitely not getting the shots, and they're definitely more efficient than um, Cece is. But now Croup, she gets going. Obviously, she can put up some big numbers. She can get going. It's interesting for me if Wofford's going to be able to get their scores to get to their average, and then what do you do there? Well, okay, let Cece get hers. Try to defend everybody else. Do you try to stop Cece and just go with? Well, she's not going to pass the ball. I mean, maybe that's the way to go. I think it depends on how Wofford's going to defend Crudup because I think she's going to, you know, just looking at some numbers here, she's going to take about 20 shots a game. You know, and, and she is not going to be bashful about it. So, 
can you force her into taking bad shots? I think would be my key for Wofford in this situation. I think mine is on both sides. This is going to be a great matchup down low of young bigs. Lily Hatton was freshman of the year last year, and Kalise Kane very easily could have won freshman of the year this year for and UNCG. improved every week too. Absolutely, yeah. She started yeah early on, you know, didn't see the floor a lot, and then she got a little bit more time, and you start to see the production, and then by the time she got to ETSU, you know, right around the middle of the conference season, you could really see that there was a force developing. And talking to Trina Patterson earlier this year, she had nothing but glowing things to say about her. And and then Hatton, you remember her from ETSU's matchup, that double overtime game against Wofford, she hit all the big shots. And Lily Hatton was the difference down the stretch in that game as Wofford won 79 to 78. Hatton's the leading scorer for this Wofford team at 10.6 per game. Kane's at 6.4, but she's averaging eight boards per contest, 36 of their 63 blocks. That is going to be a battle. And I hate to put it all on that one thing, but you look at the rest of the matchup and you've got Jackie Carmen on one side for Wofford. Struggles with efficiency, right? We both like her as a player. You know, dynamic, can shoot it. Um, can go down inside and, and score at the rim, too, but has struggled to uh, consistently put the ball in the hole and do so in a fashion that isn't volume scoring, right? And CC Crudup, like you talked about, I mean, she's taking 15 to 20 shots a game, 32% from the floor, 21% from outside. So to me, those two kind of cancel each other out. And on Wofford's side, you got a few more names you're familiar with, right? Jamari McDavid, she never took that leap for me in her career. She never got to be that... Ebony Williams type elite player in the Southern Conference, um, but she on a given day can be a big difference maker. And then Nia Lutz for Wofford too, where on UNCG's side you're relying on a Pernilla Sorensen, a Torty Powell that are, are good players. There's there's no question Amber Redman, but they don't have the experience of Wofford. If there is one thing that I can say about this matchup, I think that it's in terms of on floor minutes. And time contributing in a role that they're certainly in right now this season, I think that uh, the advantage goes to Wofford because Jimmy Garrity has put these young women out there a significant amount in years past. And certainly I think, and you mentioned Lily Hatton, well, in the two games against Wofford, she scored eight and ten points. So UNCG's been able to somewhat neutralize her. So, Ken, you're right. Can she get going? The other one that was kind of interesting is Jalen Brown. I don't know if you paid much attention to her. Um she only played in eight conference games. For an example, she played in the first game against Chat and scored two points, and then the next game rattled off like 22. And so then another game I think she went for four, another game she went for 12. And so it seems like that getting her off the bench now as a new contributor has certainly led to some victories and got some scoring punch with a name that honestly I was a little bit unfamiliar with um, until I uh, clicked on some stats and some bios here to figure that out. Oh, but that's, absolutely right. that, that, that's a nice addition and does make sense on where some of the extra scoring has come from. Yeah, missed some time, missed almost four weeks there in the middle of the conference season, but you're spot on. I mean, you look at the last five games, 11, 5, 8, 22, and 12, and so it's no shock to see they've won four of their last five. It's a great spot by you because any score in a game like this that, to me, if UNCG is going to win, it's going to be in the low 50s. Right? I mean, Wofford wants that to be up around 60, 65. They're probably winning a game like that. But any game that you're going to keep in the high 40s, low 50s, if you have somebody coming in and averaging 10 points per game, you can count on them for 10 points per game. That's almost 20% of your scoring, and that's huge, especially if they're not one like Crudup, Powell, Sorensen, Kane, Redman, the ones that we already named. So uh, could be an X pack, no question about that. We go to ETSU Sanford, the final matchup, and as a matter of fact, the first matchup chronologically in the Southern Conference women's basketball scene on day one. That's, of course, Thursday. Tomorrow uh, we're recording this at about 10.30, so 
Um, just about 24 hours from now, we'll have the Abbott Energy pregame show. ETSU and Sanford, another showdown that was relatively recently. You've got that in conference play where you have the quick turnaround against some teams. This was about two weeks ago, the one versus the eight. ETSU scored 11 of the first 14 in the team's only game this year. Sanford tied at 11, and then ETSU took a lead to the second quarter. Sanford had a strong second and took a four-point lead to the break. Bulldogs scored 20 of the first 23 out of the locker room, and while Brittany Azell's team would make a strong stand to open the fourth, Sanford would regain their bearings, eventually win 77-58. to 58. Natalie Armstrong, finally a SOCOM Player of the Year award last week, makes four different Bulldogs that have won it. Uh, that's the trouble with this team for opponents. It can be Armstrong, Ramil, Cornoyer, the Southern Conference Player of the Year that was named yesterday. It's unfortunate for them that Shante Battle got hurt early in the year because this team would be that much more dangerous with her, but she also won a SOCOM Player of the Week early on. This is a big challenge for the Bucks. There's no doubt. Um, didn't show much in the way of offense, did ETSU, until the final day of the season when they put up that big number against Mercer. It is the longest losing streak in the league versus the longest winning streak in conference. you got to have an avenue for an upset. I think Brittany Azell has talked about it in some interviews this week that she's had with the Southern Conference um, tournament crew that's doing the game down in Asheville, and she's talked to me about it as well. They're best when they press. They're best when they can force turnovers. That's been the calling card. That's been the mantra. They've had players that can do it over Brittany Azell's eight years here. I think they've got a player that can do it now, right? Carly Hooks resembles that Erica Haynes-Overton, that Tiana Tarter in terms of her defensive ability in leading a press. Uh, the Bucks are going to be at nearly full strength. Courtney Moore, we're expecting to see her back, though, from my understanding. She did have a little bit of a setback in practice over the last couple of days, so that is going to be a question mark. Ja'Kaya Davis and Carly Hooks, all-freshman team. Makaya Dowdell is someone that slumped lately but was really, really good shooting the basketball early on in the year. Um, there's a lot of positive pieces for ETSU. Are those pieces enough to put the upset puzzle together at noon tomorrow? Yes. And I think that, again, I think handicapping the tournament, you would say obviously Sanford outright champion would be a slight advantage. I think in league play they're averaging 71 points a game, but they have laid some eggs. They have had games where they've not gotten to 60, and I think that's, you know, they've got some turnovers. You look at 191 on the season. You know, they are very good at forcing them as well, though, 112 steals. So there's a little bit of flip side of that. But, yes, I think there is an opportunity um, for an upset. And I think it's always a dangerous game for a one seed because if you don't set the tone early and you let the lower seed hang around, it's a bad sign. Now, usually the upsets are a little easier when you have a full crowd because then everybody in the building turns on the higher seed, and that happens in every level of tournament play. But – I do think that there's an opportunity, you know, can you stop? I mean, really, their big three is top-heavy, especially in league action. I mean, when you average 20 a game in league action, you're certainly going to win a player of the year award and shooting 45% from the floor, 39% from three, 89% from the line, uh, 40 assists, just 30 turnovers. So that's a plus-minus. It's ridiculous. And 44 steals. I mean, bar none, those stats alone should get you player of the year, which it did, rightfully so. But I, I think it's a situation where if the energy from the last game for ETSU carries over and you get that going and can get a good start, 
It's just enough doubt for Sanford. I think you can get that going. And Sanford, the one thing I will say, they did win last year's tournament, right? So there's certainly a pedigree there. I've been there, done that. The question is, everything has been a little bit easy for them. If you look at some of their results, they've been runaways in league play. You know, they've had very little single-digit wins. They've had a handful. I think there was a six-point win against Furman. There was, a, there was I think, a four-point win UNCG. The rest has been 10, 20, 30-point wins. So can you get them in a little bit more of an uncomfortable situation with basically the Bucks going in there with nothing to lose, right? Like, all right, we've had a bad year. You know what makes our year? Beating this team. Absolutely. And becomes a Super Bowl, so. With reckless abandon, I mean, anything can happen, right? And if you do put the pressure out of your mind, because really, truly, like you said, I mean, what's the expectation right now from everyone looking at an 8-1 matchup? All the pressure's on the number one seed. I think the matchup here is Natalie Armstrong and Ja'Kaya Davis. You know, Ja'Kaya's all-freshman team, and she got owned a bit by Natalie in that first matchup. 21 points, 14 rebounds for Armstrong. And, again, I mean, Natalie's never going to win a Southern Conference Player of the Year. I mean, she could come back next year and possibly do that. My feeling is she probably won't. She was celebrated on Senior Day down at Sanford when ETSU and the Bulldogs got together. I think this is probably it for her. And it's a shame because if there were a cumulative career award and sometimes – You'll have meteor coaches give that in a player of the year. But Andrew Kornheuer was just that much better this year in terms of scoring the basketball. Like you said, 20 points per game during conference play, leading the league champion. That's always going to be the number one vote for everyone. But if there was a career vote, it would be Natalie Armstrong. She was the one that sealed that championship win last year. She was SoCon Tournament MVP. Um, She can have those really – she is a polished post presence, can also shoot it from outside, does everything – for Stanford. She is the rock of that team. While there have been transfers that have come in and come out and helped Sanford become what they have been, Sarah Myers last year and this year, Ramil and Cornoyer, she has been the constant. And so can Ja'Kaya Davis look at some of that film, pinpoint where she was bested by someone that has bested almost all post players that she's come up against during her career in the Southern Conference, and can she learn from that and apply it in an effective fashion to defending Natalie Armstrong? Because Cornoyer rattled off the stats. They're impressive. She wasn't the one that hurt the Bucs in matchup one. It was Armstrong down low. Whenever they needed a basket, they could go to her. And Ramil really didn't do much against ETSU in that first matchup either. So I didn't think that Sanford was honestly at their best when they played ETSU, which is scary because they still won by 19. That being said, if ETSU is able to capitalize on those baseline out-of-bounds they're so good at, if they're able to put the press on and pressure a Raven Omar. They tried to do some of that at Sanford, and they had to back out because the Bulldogs were kind of dicing it up. Um, if they're able to slap that press on, if they're able to, I think, play together like they did against Mercer. Everybody played double-figure minutes. Everybody scored. If they're able to settle into a rhythm that they did against the Bears, this is going to be a close game, and ETSU's got a chance for an upset. This is not going to be easy for Sanford. They are, I think, the best team in the league as a collective. But no one is immune to an upset on a day, especially when there's some belief coming off a game like ETSU had against Mercer. Some belief that I think is there for the first time all year. So, Natalie Armstrong in the clinching the conference championship game was 24 points, 8 rebounds. In the two losses, I just thought I'd look that up, Coyne-Oyer was typical her level game. But Armstrong. 4 of 15, 2 of 7. Mm. That's 6 of 22, just 14 points wow. in the two losses. 
the two regular season SOCON losses. So the regular season SOCON losses, the one thing I can point to to back up your point in the matchup you want to watch is that Natalie Armstrong has struggled in those two games. That's telling. So if they can get more struggles from her, can ETSU take advantage of that? My answer is, oh, I can't tell you. Let's pick them, baby. <laughs> Let's pick them. All right. Our bold prediction brackets coming up after this timeout. San Osakic, Buccaneer Source Network. This responsible gaming message is brought to you by the Tennessee Lottery. When you play the lottery, it's important to play responsibly. Know your limit and spend only what you can afford. Set a budget and stick to it. And remember, as long as you're having fun, you're always a winner in our book. The Tennessee Lottery is a proud supporter of National Problem Gambling Awareness Month. To learn more about problem gambling resources, visit tnlottery.com. Tom Brady won't make that mistake again. Antonio Brown to Tampa. Absolutely not going to happen. Definitely not going to win a Super Bowl. Play Thompson, comeback player of the year. Calling it right now. The season Jim Harbaugh is taking No, no, I said Juwan Howard. You cut that out wrong. I said Juwan no Howard. The Southern Conference will be Although he can beat the same point. Wake Forest. They did not have a good night last night. Steve Ford most certainly will be back. Jay Sandoz will fulfill his New Year's resolution 30 pounds down during quarantine. 30 when wins for Wake Forest next year. one of the most insanely idiotic things no. I have ever heard. No. The simple wrong would have done just fine. Combo the 30 pounds with the Wake Forest. I mean, 30 Combo uh, with my wife getting me the extra spicy tortilla shell, spicy chicken, the fresh jalapenos, the pickled jalapenos, and the hottest sauce they had and didn't tell me until I got... A little bit into the uh, burrito last night, s- sweat pouring off my body. Everybody I'm like, what are you doing? Are you doing? No, you said something about 30 pounds. And, uh, oh, 30, pounds. 30, 30 wins and 30 wins. 30, win, 30 well, pounds, 30 wins. Yeah. She keeps giving me that. I'm not going to be able to eat. That was where? Where did she get that? Uh, bar- uh, 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 Barbaritos. They're Barbaritos. They've got some. Yeah, Barbaritos. Barbaritos. There you go. All right, let's start with the women's bread. All right, women's. So you don't have the plans, right? So it's one eight four five two seven three six. I'm starting up top. Clear to me, ETSU. Number eight seed. Last time the Bucks were an eight seed. You know my favorite stat. Eight seed in the Southern Conference. Last time the Bucks were eight seed Southern Conference. Oh, four, oh, five, right? It was. And it was in Chattanooga, the tournament. And the number one seed was Chattanooga. But you know who won the game? Your East Tennessee State Buccaneers. <laughs> History repeats itself. I love it. I, love it. I have it as well. Uh, I'm going to go with Wofford in the four, five. I'm going to go UNCG. I don't know why I don't think they have a chance in this game. They're hot. They're putting things together. Jalen Brown, like you said, has been great. Kane, though, inexperienced. You know, Wofford, some of those players have been there. I think it is the experience piece for me. I'm going to go Wofford. Okay. Mercer. It I was, Kylie it, Hill, I, let me tell you, it, this is the one I struggled in the first round the most with, and I ended up putting Mercer on the paper. Yeah, me too. I'm going with Chattanooga, too. I can't. I, I, Jackie Carson, I know she's your gal, but I can't do it. You know who I can't do No, you're doing it for Jackie. Oh, you are. It's double. You're doing it for Love Jackie. Love Jackie. And uh, do you really think I'm taking Chattanooga in any tournament ever? Well, no. you like the reverse psychology now, so I'm, I wonder if you want the Ah, just curse Jackie. No, you're right. I probably just curse Jackie. Jackie, I'm sorry I took you. So let's be clear here. We have to have at least two upsets at some point in the tournament. And I have three. How's it make you feel? I think I have. <laughs> Eight, five, and six. 
So you, ha yeah, right. Now, minor more along the way, because you look at the matchup in the semifinal ETS you offered. It's about to be the Bucks game. Blue and gold, through and through. Put those sunglasses on in Asheville. It is Brittany Azell and Company to the Southern Conference Championship game. So the year ETSU did win as an eight seed, they did play the five seed. It was Georgia Southern Eagles. You like the research on this. Wow. And it was an overtime game, 73-71. It did not go the Bucks' favor, but guess what? This one will. Boom. Bucks championship game. Love it. Mercer and Chattanooga upset here. I think it's, you know, three, two, three over two. I go Chattanooga. Oh, I'd Mercer Furman. I'm going Mercer. Mercer Furman, you're going Mercer. Okay, so you got Mercer and ET. Oh, Susie versus Brittany in the championship game. Oh, Bucks have had their number. Bucks have back. had their number. That's right. They beat them on senior day. They swept them last year. Nearly beat them here on. Uh, wow, you're talking me into it. Buccaneer championship. You gotta love it. The you, Bucks so go to the NCAA tournament. You got ETSU over Chat. I'm gonna break your heart here. Mercer's going to be oh, the issue. It's wow. going to be the greatest run. Wow. It's going to come down. Yeah, Get out of here. Uh, that is terrible. Okay. Oh, we need to move on quickly then. Because I don't want to uh, explode on you on, uh, on air as I'm very tempted to do right now. Citadel in Western Carolina. The 8-9 on the men's side. I slaved over this one. I mean, it was, uh, it was tough. I put in long hours on it. I ended up going with a simple... An obvious proposition that Western is the hotter team. And so I took Western in the 9-8. I'm not going to count that as an upset because I do have some bigger upsets down the road. But the 9-8, uh, the I'm going with Western Carolina. I'm going to go Citadel. Citadel figures it out, hits some threes, hold Western down. Are you going with that because it's the classic, well, everyone expects Western to win. But no, Citadel no, is you're, lined you're, Dugger. You're, you're, you're going to just just wait. Okay, I, will, I will give you the, the reasoning here in just a second. I'm ready to have Stanford completely Mercer. Okay. And there's only, and this is only the only reason I'm going this route, because Western seems to be the smart play, and yes, Mercer will uh, slam Sanford. Yes, not the yada yada that, but let's be honest, it's the only yada yada we got. Western UNCG. Uh, for me, Citadel UNCG. Oof. Oof. Citadel yeah. on a given day, you know, like they just it's, make it's, it's it so tough. ugly. Uh, UNCG. Western Carolina. Number nine seed upsets the number one seed. The Catamounts going on to the Southern Conference semifinals. Again, we have to have the upsets, but I don't think it's that outlandish, certainly because you saw them beat UNCG just a week or so ago. But I'm very stubborn, as you know, and when I believe something is a certain way, and I pretty much nailed the conference this year outside of Mercer, I have to stick with it until it goes down in flames. And I really thought Western Carolina, I guess Western Carolina would be the other one that I didn't really know what was coming. When I believe them to be what they could be and they start to show glimpses down the stretch, how can I not have them winning not only the play-in, but then going and doing the unthinkable and taking down the league champion because they're rolling. And when they're on a roll, they can be as good as anyone and perhaps even – even better than some may have thought, because they added Corey Hightower, right? All right, fine, I'm going to Citadel. Injury. You're going to Citadel. No, here we go. I love it. You're, You're just going to keep talking, I'll say that. Okay. CG yeah, sure, sure. the quarterfinals. Wow. All right. Chattanooga ETSU. Let me ETSU. It's impossible to beat a team three I, times. I, I the can't. first two times you've been And, and if, they win, if they win a third way, that is impossible to win late in the game with something that can never happen in basketball, I may have to retire. This may drive me into retirement early. 
I don't know what I would do with my life, but I just don't I, I, I would have to retire. How it's I, again, if Chet just won a regular game, I, I won't retire. But if they win in a ridiculous like three quarter court heave or something like that, I think it's just time to retire. Just hang it up. Wow, three quarter. So, don't speak that. Uh, uh, Mercer and Wofford, and speaking of being stubborn, Mercer, the other team that I thought was going to be up this year and they've been down, it's Mercer. I'm going to Wofford. I'm going to go chalk on that one. Okay, that's fine. That's probably smart. Furman VMI, I'm going high seed firm here. Going VMI. Going VMI. You're going to love this in a minute when I tie it all together. So I have Western and ETSU, the 9 and the 5 on the top of the bracket. You have the 8 and the 5, and I'm going ETSU to the championship game. I'm going ETSU as well. I have heard some nightmare scenarios from conspiracy theorists and those that don't want to see things go this way but are trying to explore things from every avenue that this matchup happens and ETSU's streak against Western comes to an end. Western goes on to the championship game and VMI's there and it's Western VMI. The, the, the game you never thought you'd see in a championship game, Western VMI. I'm not seeing it. Though. Not happening. Not going that way. Nope. Mercer Furman, you have... Wofford VMI. Okay. Yeah, we have some differences on this one. Yes, we do. Uh, Furman. VMI. <laughs> so you got ETSU VMI. And the Bucks winning. Oh, now, you ready You ready for me to tie it together for you? Okay. Last time the Bucks were a 5C. You love that. Okay. Your old bracket and on both won, sides has been dictated. And, and won the tournament. 5C and won the tournament. We go all the way back to 2009-10, Atlantic Sun Conference Tournament in Hawkins Arena in Macon, Georgia, oh, for those man. of you checking. The Bucks defeated the four seed in the quarterfinals. Then they defeated the eight seed in the semifinals. And then they beat the six seed homestanding Mercer Bears to go to the NCAA Tournament to take on the six guys from Kentucky got drafted in the first round. Here's what I'm saying. Did you say four, eight, six? They did. Exact same thing. That's why yeah, I did it. I don't even care who's playing who. I'm going oh. with the last time the Bucks did it. That's the route they took. There is no logic. There, uh, so if you're UNCG, don't at me or firm it at me. I'm doing it because ETSU in 2009-10, and people are probably already starting to tweet at me when they hear this before they hear the explanation. I have gone with, in women's and men's, I have found a tie that yeah. has worked in my advantage to just play the seed game over everything else, and that's what I'm going with. And clearly I have to get revenge on you for not picking ETSU to win the women's bracket. So, for me, this is the year for Furman. Listen, there, people don't realize your affinity for purple things that you wear, so this isn't shocking to me. If you wouldn't have gone against ETSU in the women's bracket, I wouldn't have to do this. I wouldn't have to, but you okay. you forced my hand, Jay Sandoz. This is Furman's right. year. It is Bob Ritchie, the one thing that he has not accomplished at Furman. He finally is able to check it off the list, and then I'd imagine probably this go is our bold bracket, by the way, right? Bold right. bracket, right? We 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 may do a real bracket later. Maybe this is our bold bracket. Out, though, I, I like to think that people bold bracket to this just assume we're crazy anyway, and they hear this and they're like, <laughs> they're like, these are really what, the what are these? Bold, we had rules that you had to have so many upsets and everything. So this is called the bold bracket. I think we ran out of upsets on the men's yeah, side. Yeah, I mean we, we just we, I mean we maxed out. It's the bold bracket. Maybe ETSU Mercer Furman. I'll tell you what. Oh, man. Maybe we'll do a real bracket, seal them in an envelope, and may or may not tell people if we were better than our bold brackets. <laughs> I'm going to send them to all the SoCon fans and just see their reactions. Like, tape your reactions if you get this in the mail from us. All right. There we go. We'll recap the whole tournament. SoCon tournament! Coming up. Best time of the year! I guess Tuesday. Buccaneers on Network. Go Bucks.